And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. Minnesota voters have a lot of choices to make this year, some they may not have thought much about. At the uh, all the state leadership positions, what are called the constitutional offices, are on the ballot this year. That includes governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and attorney general. It also includes the Minnesota State Auditor, and that's the campaign we're going to talk about now. The State Auditor supervises and audits finances of counties and cities in Minnesota. The Auditor also sits on some important decision-making state panels, including the Board of Investment and the Executive Council. And for the past four years, the job has been held by DFLer Julie Blaha. She is seeking a second four-year term in November, and Julie Blaha joins me now. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for having us, and, and thanks for taking the time to talk about this important race. Okay, well, let's talk about it then. Uh, What is the role of the state auditor as you see it? And this is probably the most common question I get to start. Um, Since it's different in every state, if you're not sure what your state auditor does, that's not on you. (laughs) It is is a little trickier. Uh, In Minnesota, uh, the state auditor oversees about $60 billion in government spending. And and with us, it's primarily local government, cities, counties, townships, school boards, that kind of thing. Uh, We do it with examinations like audits and investigations. Uh, We provide direct support with tools and training. And we also provide analysis where we give you data in context so you can make decisions based on facts. And ultimately, that's all interesting, but uh, the reason we do it is so we can protect your freedom to make a decision in your own community. If you have good data, you get to make good decisions. And the kind of decisions we're talking about are so important. I mean, it's uh, whether we get plowed out in the winter, whether the ambulance gets there on time, uh, whether uh, the water turns on. These are really important uh, decisions that affect us every single day. There was uh, a law that passed a few years back. Um, It allowed local governments to hire their own auditors. So how much does that cut into what your office does? Well, you know, it, it, you know, it kind of gets at what I walked into uh, four years ago. You know, when I came into this office, it was under heavy attack. You know, we just had a lawsuit. We um, People were talking about its very existence. People were suggesting we should get rid of it altogether. So when I came in, my first step was to rebuild relationships to make sure that um, people didn't all stop doing their audits with us or anything. Uh, luckily, the quality of our audits is so high that um, we we have very few people leaving uh, at this point. They like to stay with us. And in fact, we have several uh, counties and cities that are asking us to do their audits again because they know not only are we high quality, but we also have a pretty pretty fair price too. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so our first step was to, again, rebuild these relationships. And it's a good thing we did because when COVID hit, we had all of this extra oversight to do with the extra money that came in. And because we had d- turned the corner, we were able to pick up that extra oversight to the point that we've expanded our oversight for the first time in 20 years. We've picked up um, just this year, started doing a larger audit of about $20 billion. Uh, and, and now we're in a place now where we can continue to expand and keep rebuilding back to uh, back to what Minnesotans need from us. This is, uh, as we talked about, a job that you know, people are confused about or, or aren't paying a lot of attention to. Uh, say again why you think it's so important. Well, again, these are the decisions that we make closest to home, right? And and so we think about, you know, if the federal government gets bogged down or the state gets locked up, uh, we still have to get it done in local government. You know, local government doesn't have the luxury of an endless fight, or we literally don't get out of our driveways from January to March. So as a result, they have figured things out. And a lot of our really good ideas start locally. You know, uh, ideas around, say, the minimum wage started city by city. You know, we solve a lot of our housing problems in economic, uh, in um, housing development authorities, and we solve them community by community. So we also found that during COVID, uh, the pandemic exposed how important it is to have a local response to even a global crisis. Local responses can be the most customized, the most precise, the most specific to your area. And during COVID, local governments, have, many of them for the first time used federal funds and were able to get things as directly to people uh, as they could. And I think they're a big reason why we stayed out of economic freefall. So this is an extremely important level of government and has that is not only doing great things already, but there has great opportunity to do even more. Well, speaking of federal money that came to the state during COVID, your opponent has uh, said repeatedly that you should have played a bigger role in catching uh, the fraud, the alleged fraud in that Feeding Our Future case where $250 million went out the door, apparently, 
so how do you respond to that charge? Oh, that's so frustrating because, you know, um, that is something that is absolutely outside the purview of our office. This was being audited by the legislative auditor at the time. The investigations are federal, so FBI. Um, but you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, you can hear that uh, uh, in the last debate, uh, gubernatorial candidate uh, Scott Jensen, he kept talking about how that was the legislative auditor's area. There's even a uh, an editorial in um, or a, an op- uh, opinion piece in the Star Tribune today written by Republican legislators. Legislators talking again about how this was under the purview of the legislative auditor. And and, and, and those lies, they're, they're frustrating, but the worst part of it is it's the distraction. You know, it's hard to get attention for local government. And 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 so when we have the when we have people's attention, we have to take advantage of it. You know, if you're gonna go off and try to um, do things that either the FBI is better to do or the legislative auditor or the federal government, well then you're not gonna be focused on places like Good Thunder. Um just uh just this week, uh their mayor was uh, arrested for embezzlement. Mm. Now, that's probably not gonna make headlines outside of Blue Earth County. But you know what? It really matters to the people that live there. It matters to the people that depend on Good Thunder's um, services. Uh, And so every moment you're spending trying to do something somebody else should do to just grab a headline for yourself, you're leaving a place like Good Thunder um, uh, in the lurch. And so I'm going to keep my focus on local government because they desperately need us and they deserve that attention. So does the the state auditor have no role in uh, using the position to raise an alarm when you see something that's that doesn't look right? Oh, you absolutely certainly could. But, you know, one of the things that you also have to do is you need to wait till you have all the information. You know, it really doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what you know. And right now, there are, where there's an FBI investigation that's ongoing. The legislative auditor is doing a review. And, uh, you know, it'd be better right now to help support them. And we're trying to help support the legislative auditor in their review as well. Uh, but we're going to wait till we get all the facts. And then make a decision based on everything that we hear. Uh, if you start getting out ahead of things, yeah, again, you can grab a headline, but you can jeopardize a conviction or you can go down the wrong path. So, yes, uh, uh, let's, but let's take the time. Let's get all the facts and before we actually start having that conversation. You're listening to NPR News. We're talking to Julie Blaha. She's the uh, DFL incumbent Minnesota State Auditor running for re-election this year for another four-year term. Uh, let me ask you about something else your opponent has been talking about, and that is the uh, cost overruns on the Southwest mm-hmm. Light Rail Line. Cost on that project has uh, doubled. Now I think it's at $2.75 billion. There's a big question about where the last $500 million to pay for it is going to come from. Uh, should you have been raising alarms about that? Well, I'll tell you, if you're uh, upset about the cost overruns uh, for Southwest Light Rail, um, you can help, you can thank an auditor. Because one of the reasons we know that there are cost overruns is because our audit ensures that they're disclosing these things. And the reason that y- that they were disclosing these overruns is because they're following the, the, uh, the, pro- the processes that we check for. So that's, that's our role in that. The reason you know about it is because they know if they hadn't disclosed it, it would have shown up on the audit. And, and and so I think it's really disingenuous uh, to suggest that, um, uh, well, one, that a financial audit does more than it's supposed to do. Um, but it is at a, at, we're at the point now where the information is out there and now we have to step back. I know my opponent wants to basically now tell them how they should solve the problem, everything they should do. But my job is to give you the information and then let you find the solutions yourself. That is part of that freedom to make local decisions. It's not my my work is to give you the information. And if you make legal, reasonable decisions, we'll back you up on those. But they are your decisions. So our job was, again, to ensure that that data is out there. And it is. And now our job is to back away and let you make the decisions that you have the right to make. The legislature did ask the legislative auditor to do a special report on that project. Is that something that even comes under the purview of your office? Would you ever do a special report on something like that? We certainly could. But, you know, one one thing you'll see the difference between the legislative auditor and the state auditor in Minnesota is the legislative auditor, since they work for the legislature where they're making some of these decisions, they'll sometimes do more subjective reviews of the decisions legislators have made. That makes perfect sense. It's the legislator's decision. It's the legislative auditor. We are focusing on objective financial information. So we're looking at things like um, uh, like conflicts of interest. We're looking at things like embezzlement. We're looking at things like one of the things we're analyzing right now is how do local governments share money? Um, you know, during crises, 
uh, many local governments know how to spend money, you know, if there's a flood or a tornado or something. But under COVID, what we found out is they had to share money more often. So what we are analyzing right now is what structures do small governments need to be able to oversee vendors and contractors? And so that's the kind of work that we're going to do. More objective, more financial. Uh, another uh, job of the state auditor and all the constitutional officers is to uh, serve on the investment board, the state investment board. Right. Um, there's been some talk there about, uh, they call it environment, social, and governance con- concerns uh, when investing money. Um, are you in favor of that, looking at these uh, these uh, issues, including climate change as the state invests a huge amount of money for pension funds and other things. Right. It's over $130 billion that we invest uh, to support dignity and retirement for, you know, the people who teach our kids and uh, put out our fires and all that. Uh, So it's really important. Uh, And it's really important that we consider every risk that's in there. Now, my job on the State Board of Investment uh, is as a fiduciary. So I am focused entirely on the financial health of the fund. And one overwhelming evidence is showing as the United States is going, or the whole world is going through an energy transition, that energy transition is having a seismic effect on the markets. It's very clear that climate risk is also investment risk. So you have to consider energy transition because it's such a huge trend. And this is something that's actually pretty non-controversial in the world of investing. I mean, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, everyone considers climate risk when they invest. Uh, The people that don't are generally people who are trying to protect either big oil or a polluter. And so they're trying to politicize the issue so they can ignore overwhelming evidence that you have to look at climate uh, risk if you're going to protect people's retirements. And so that's what I want to see. I want to see us looking at the the data accurately, following through, and taking those risks seriously. Uh, Another job of the state auditor to sit on the executive council. Now, I think some of us heard of this executive council when the governor was issuing his orders on COVID. True. Did you ever uh, raise any issue with any of the governor's orders or was it all pretty much the governor had a plan and you went along with it? Well, I can tell you this. One thing I really appreciated being on this uh, executive council, um, you know, uh, A.G. Ellis and Secretary of State Simon, attorney, uh, you know, um, uh, Governor Walls, uh, Lieutenant Governor Flanagan, all of us believe science is real. And I'll tell you, uh, when we see what happened in other states, thank goodness we had that to start. Um, and so we we all were agreeing that we're going to follow the science. We're going to be smart about it. We were going to pay attention to what really worked. We're going to be very practical. Um, that being said, oh, oh, we certainly did not agree um, uh, every time. And in fact, before every discussion, we spent a lot of time hashing it out. Um, I, you know, if if a an executive order came out, then I went out and talked to everybody involved. And Looked at it with my own lens. And my lens was to look at it as how is this going to affect particularly local government and how is this going to affect finances? Is this going to, are the numbers going to add up? So yes, there were several things that uh, changed quite a bit along the way because of either my input or the other members' input. Uh, But you know what? Because we knew we had to get things done, we didn't use the opportunity to grandstand. We weren't out there trying to make names for ourselves. We put our heads down, did the work so that Minnesotans could get through this crisis. Well, speaking of not grandstanding, and maybe that's the wrong word to use, but, you know, there have been former auditors, Arne Carlson, Mark Dayton, even Rebecca Otto, who had the job before you, who uh, ran for governor. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any aspirations to uh, run for any other office, or are you happy where you are? I have to say, every so often when someone will say, hey, you'd be a great governor, and and I want to respond, well, I thought you were my friend, because I have to say, that's a, that's a tough job. I am so glad Governor Walls is doing that work for us. But um, but you know what? I am so excited about what I do. I have always loved standing up for the little guy. I have always loved getting into the gears and doing the nerdy, hard work uh, that it takes. So, you know, I'm so excited to be doing what you're doing. I'm not think uh, what I'm doing that I'm not thinking about anything else right now. The work I do is so important, and I'm so excited to keep that focus on local government for the next four years. Uh, there have been some polls on this race. Mm-hmm. Looks pretty close. Yep. A uh, couple weeks to go here. A little more than two weeks before election day. How do you win? How do you how do you close this out? Well, it's it's just what we're doing right here. You know, when people take the time to listen to both me and my opponents, uh, they are generally breaking our way because again, it's the idea of do you want somebody who again is going to focus on just kind of the hard work of it. 
Or do you want somebody who, for instance, as a Trump election lawyer, got into a car chase with an election judge in 2020, filed a police report on the guy. And even though it came back that he had not done anything, the election judge didn't do anything illegal, he's still telling that story to promote the big lie. You know, somebody who could not only promote a big lie like that, but throw a civil servant under the bus to do it, that's a dangerous person to have in office. That's an abuse of power. So there are clear differences between me and my opponents. And as people get to know them, I think the choice is clear. DFL State Auditor Julie Blaha, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for taking the time. That's Julie Blaha. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about the campaign for Minnesota State Auditor. We just heard from incumbent Julie Blaha, and now her Republican challenger is on the line. Ryan Wilson is a Maple Grove attorney who has worked in the medical device industry. This is his first run for statewide office. Ryan Wilson, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having us. It's great. Uh, I'm happy to come here and talk about the race. So what motivated you to run for state auditor? Well, you know, Minnesotans have been through a lot these last uh, last four years in particular. They've seen, you know, record-setting scandals, you know, waste of their tax dollars, whether that be the daycare fraud, you know, from a couple years back. Uh, we saw this massive light rail overrun. Um, and then more recently, this Feeding Our Future scandal started to bubble up just before I got in the race. And so, you know, Minnesotans need a state auditor that's really going to take a you know, proactive role to the position, something like they've seen with past auditors, whether that be Judy Dutcher, Mark Dayton, Arnie Carlson, um, somebody that's going to be willing to use all the tools of the job to fight for taxpayers and fight to you know, watch over those taxpayer dollars. And so, uh, you know, I saw I saw there was a need for somebody to step up. I saw that I had the skills. You know, I ran a uh, medical device auditing company. We helped you know medical device companies around Minnesota bring their bring their products to market by running and auditing their clinical trials. And and I knew that I had the skills to be able to you know lead an organization and really help help Minnesota you know, get back on track. Well, uh, talk a little more about uh, how you see the role of the job. And when you say you want to use all the tools, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I, I think the legislature is right now. I think the legislature has given a lot of tools to the state auditor's office to fight waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, unfortunately, you heard in the last uh, the last segment that our current state auditor is is unwilling or uh, you know um, unknowingly uh, not using those tools. We had a press conference this week announcing my nonprofit oversight plan, how we're going to strengthen. Uh, you know, grantees and contractors that receive local government funds to make sure that we don't have a repeat at the local level of things like feeding our future. And, you know, the chair of the Legislative Audit Commission, uh, who the Legislative Auditor you know, reports into, um, plainly said that Auditor Blaha has the tools and the ability to do the job to fight these things, but just isn't using them today. You know, a question I get asked a lot is, you know, what other tools do you need or what resources do you need? And they're really, they're all they're all there. And so when we see Auditor Blaha, you know, run away from her responsibilities and her failures on, you know, feeding our future, for example. It's disappointing because there was a real opportunity there to, you know, raise her hand, to say something, to notify the federal government. Um, and what you heard when you asked her in your previous segment, you know, what she could have done differently, you didn't, you didn't get a, get in, you didn't get an answer. You got, uh, you know, diversion and and attempting to blame it on other people like the legislative auditor. And you know, the, the auditor, uh, Auditor Blaha, signed off on a report to the federal government and in that report. It said that feeding our future was you know, missing their their audit, a critical piece of the audit, and uh, and she didn't say anything. She she just passed that report right on without any note, without any uh, additional information. And that was a real opportunity, you know, in, in early 2021 to you know put the feds on notice that this was happening. You know, even before the FBI got involved, um, being able to let them know what's happening so that money didn't continue to flow out of the state. But but what authority did? the state auditor have over feeding our future? Because wasn't that a federal program that, you know, the Department of Agriculture had a had a oversight over? And uh, then the Education Department and the Education Department brought in the Attorney General. I mean, what more could the state auditor have done there? Yeah, and a lot of that stuff happened later. Um, and again, I, whenever I criticize my opponent for not doing something, I always start with the question, what would I have done if I'm mm. in office, right? I'm an attorney, and it's important to be precise and to know what you know what one could have done i also used to you know, like i said just to run an auditing company um uh, she signed off on a report you know, she has the responsibility to sign off on a report of all of the subrecipients of federal dollars in minnesota so that includes nonprofits as well as local governments and so in that report feeding our futures listed as not having their audit 
And what I would have done is I would have followed up to understand why that audit wasn't there. And I would have found out that there were issues, that it was in litigation, that MDE was following up on it. Now, the FBI wasn't involved yet at this point. Um, but I would have then written letters, made notes in the reports, picked up the phone. I would have called. And when, a, when an elected official, an elected state auditor uh, in a state is calling the government, the federal government, that's going to carry some weight with it, right? And people are going to respond and want to do something about that. And so that was absolutely in her purview and had an opportunity to say something, to speak up and to speak out. And, you know, we've really seen an unwillingness across all of these issues, whether it be the Met Council or the daycare fraud that kind of landed right at her feet right when she started uh, started in office. Uh, well, um, the daycare fraud was before she took office, but let's talk about uh, the Southwest Light Rail Line. Um, you've gone after her on that. What could the state auditor have done about that? Well, the state auditor audits the Southwest Light Rail, or light, audits the Met Council every year. Mm-hmm. The largest infrastructure project in Minnesota history is being you know, done by the Met Council, and, and she could have caught it. And so last summer, when the, uh, when the legislature, when the public, when everyone was asking how much is this going to cost, she could have gone in and she could have used her authority to figure out what was happening. She could have asked the tough questions. You know, we saw this. Uh, Judy Dutcher did this. There was an issue with the uh, uh, the bus operations of the Met Council, and there it wasn't information forthcoming. And she went and issued a subpoena um, to be able to get that information, again, to be that watchdog for the public. And so it's, again, not not saying it's not my job, not saying I can't do this. I mean, the state auditor has a lot of power. We've seen state auditors in the past you know, have to issue subpoenas when necessary, but a lot of times just speaking up and speaking out brings visibility to the issue and gets you know, gets people moving. What should happen with that Southwest project now? Uh, do you throw in the towel at this point when it's almost done, or do you press ahead and and finish it? You know, and, and, and that question um, is a great question uh, because it, it lets me highlight the, the role of the state auditor, which isn't to set policy. So my opponent wants to set a lot of policy, and she talks a lot about uh, you know putting her thumb on scale for this particular policy or that one. And, and as a state auditor, my job will be to implement the policies that the legislature decides or that local governments decide or that our school districts decide. And so when a program decides to get funded, for example, like child daycare, um, making sure that that money is going to where it's supposed to go to. And wh- whether I agree or disagree with a particular project isn't the role of the state auditor. The state auditor is to make sure that those tax dollars aren't being wasted, aren't being abused. I mean, we mentioned the daycare fraud, for example. Hmm. The first uh, couple months of Auditor Blaha's term, the legislative auditor put out a report that called out several things that were failing at the county level that enabled that fraud to happen. And this is where I've been critical for her. And I you know she tries to mislead voters and say that happened before her time, but my criticism has been precise. It's that the report was issued when she started her term and never followed up on it, right? Never, never went to the counties and said, hey, these issues, right? These, uh, when you're qualifying people, when you're investigating people, when you're making sure that these programs are being run accurately, did you shore up your internal controls? Is the fraud still happening? And so when I go around Minnesota, people ask that. They say, is it still happening? Is it stopped? You know, how do we know it's not happening? And when we have an auditor that's unwilling to, again, use the tools and to dig into really the issues of the day and instead blame it on you know, her predecessor or blame it on somebody else or say that it's not willing, it's just that's a key difference between an auditor Blaha and myself. You know, I, I want to use all of the tools to the office, again, like other auditors have, um, uh, to fight waste, fraud, and abuse and not to, you know, uh, shy away from my responsibilities. You're listening to NPR News. We're talking to Ryan Wilson. He's the Republican candidate for Minnesota State Auditor running against DFLer Julie Blaha. Um, I, I want wanted to give you a chance to respond to something she said. Uh, she said you were promoting the big lie by telling a story about what happened on uh, election night 2020 when you, uh, when you uh, trailed a, an election worker. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, you know, the, again, and that's the unfortunate part. You know, people expect you know, the state auditor to kind of be this beacon or bearer of truth. And unfortunately, I think the more that Auditor Blaha falls behind in the polls here, the more, um, I guess, the more she wants to mislead people about things like this. And this has been debunked several times. You know, I was a uh, volunteer poll watcher on election night, didn't know if I was watching Republican or Democrat ballots. And, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the night, uh, poll watcher brought, brought, poll, uh, brought ballots to his home, uh, which is really atypical. And then, I said he was going to bring him to the election center, and so you know, our job was to follow chain of custody. He didn't know if they were Republican or Democrat, and it's not as uh, wild as my opponent likes to describe it. And this has been debunked, um, you know, and I think there was a, a counter-commentary that was written into these uh, you know, misleading facts that she was putting out there up in the Duluth, uh, Duluth Tribune. And, 
And uh, and not a big lie thing. You know, I've said multiple times, you know, Joe Biden is our president. We feel it every day at the gas pump, <laughs> but he is definitely our president. Uh, I think NPR has a uh, uh, voter guide, and in that voter guide, you know, talk about how the election there was, you know, it wasn't wasn't fraudulent, uh, not promoting the big lie. So again, for her to, you know, to to pass on these myths, mistruths, I'm trying to be charitable with how I describe them. Um, uh, it's just it's a disservice to voters, and it's a distraction. Um, you know, and that's been kind of a modus operandi through this election. It's talking about a lot of things that aren't the issue of the state auditor's office. So you hear talk about a lot of these social issues of the day that are they're important to her. Um, they're her progressive ideology, but they really don't belong in the state auditor's office. And so, you know, again, my goal, and I keep hitting on this, is we're going to return it to the, you know, the days of old, you know, the Arnie Carlson, Mark Dayton, uh, Judy Dutcher, you know, these, these auditors that you know, knew how to see issues that were happening, you know, out in the world, out in the public, and, and be that watchdog and be a voice, you know, for the taxpayers. Um, when you talk about uh, social issues or, or things she's promoting, I mean, uh, the, the auditor does sit on the state investment board, and uh, she was talking about uh, taking climate change into account when uh, investing $130 billion in state uh, pension funds and things like that. Would you, uh, what do you see as your role on that uh, investment board? Yeah, you know, absolutely climate change has to be taken into account for our investments. But what we don't need is to put the thumb on the scale to overweight it. And so it's, uh, it's like I said, somewhat insulting to our investment managers to say that they wouldn't take in all risks for our pensioners, that they need to be told to uh, put extra weight on this particular risk. And so that's just you know, where her and I differ. Actually, we agree. You know, at, the, at a 2018 League of Women Voters event, her position is the exact same as the one I'm articulating now, and she didn't believe that we needed these things. But now she's in office, and I guess she has a right to change her mind. Um, but I just I don't believe that the pensions should be used to disproportionately fight climate change. I think that there are other tools that uh, that can do that. The legislature obviously plays a big role, but even the state auditor's office. And I told this to Auditor Blaha uh, yesterday when we had a, uh, an event together. Um, her her predecessor did something called a best practice review, and they went to went to uh, cities and looked at cities that switched over from incandescent lights to back then halide lights, and the amount of uh, energy that that saved, but also cost the taxpayer that that saved. And so that's a real tangible way that the state auditor's office can help the environment. And so what Auditor Blaha wants, you know, she doesn't want to do that. That's the hard work. She hasn't done a best practice review, even though the statutes require her to her entire tenure in office. Um, uh, instead, she wants to use pensioners' funds to advance her progressive agenda. And I guess we just disagree on that. I think it's too important to protect the return on investment of our pensions to put our thumb on a scale on, on any particular side. Well, what about uh, things like uh, divesting in, you know, years ago it was divesting in South Africa. Um, that's been done uh, over the years. Would you have a problem with things like that? No, and, and that's, a, that's a great question. I think we divested to Russia recently as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. And that is a job, that's the job of the legislature. It gets back to the fiduciary duty, right? The duty is to seek the best return on investment as possible for our pensioners. And whenever we want to take an entire class off the table for non-financial reasons, like divesting in South Africa, which is a good thing, or divesting in Russia, which is a good thing, that's a job for the legislature who's going to do that on behalf of the people. They're going to say, we're making this policy decision that even if it hurts us a little bit in terms of return on investment, it's worth it for us because of you know, some greater principle. And so uh, if there is a case to be made to divest of certain things, that you know, at, at some cost, whether it's small or big, uh, that's really a question for the legislature to decide on behalf of Minnesotans. Because ultimately, if our pensions fall behind, uh, it's not just the pensioners that might not get their full payout. It's the taxpayers that have to backfill that and bail that out. Another uh, job of the auditor is to sit on the executive council, and that's the group that approved uh, the governor's use of his emergency powers during the COVID pandemic. How would you work with a governor of your own party in in those kind of circumstances? And how would you work if it just so happens that you get elected and a governor from another party is uh, is in office? How would you work in those circumstances? Yeah, you know, in either scenario, I think it's important to have an independent voice on that executive council. And I think that's one thing that we really lacked during these last two years and that people were really e eager for. They wanted someone else to be there when, you know, when, uh, you know really – unprecedented times and unprecedented, you know, um, uh, reductions in our liberty were happening, right? And and whether for good or for bad reasons, you know, and whether, you know, someone too far didn't go far enough, uh, Minnesotans wanted to know that 
there was more than groupthink. There was more than rubber stamps happening, that somebody else was checking the brakes a little bit. And they didn't get a feel for that. And that's why you heard people say, for example, they wanted the legislature more engaged in the process, right? People, somebody representing the people. And so when I'm there, um, you know, I will bring, again, my independent perspective to that. And I'll challenge, you know, the issues. And I'll do it publicly. You know, Auditor Blaha talks a lot about transparency. And, you know, she got called out on this early, that she's approved every single one of Governor Wallace's executive orders and said she wouldn't have changed any of those. And when asked why or, you know, why she uh, why she wasn't willing to speak up or speak out, well, she says we did it in back rooms behind the scenes, and that's why it's not reflected in any of the minutes or any of the recordings. And uh, I just I see it differently. Again, I see that as an independent constitutional officer, you should be willing to speak up and put yourself on the record for the people so they can see that you're standing up for them. Uh, the polls show this race is pretty tight. So how do you how are you going to win it in the next two weeks? You know, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing, which is making the case, which is really a, you know, a bipartisan case, is that the state auditor should play a role in protecting taxpayer dollars. Nobody wants their tax dollars stolen, whether on the left or the right, and we work too hard for them. But also making the case that the things that the tax dollars go to can be protected by the state auditor, and whether those are things that are favored by the left or the right. You know, once the legislature decides this is what we value, this is what we're investing money in, and it goes to our counties, our cities, our school districts, um, I'm going to protect those things. I'm going to make sure that the money is getting to where it's supposed to go, that it's not being taken by bad actors, that it's not being stolen, but that it, uh, it's going to help the people it's meant to help. Ryan Wilson, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. This is great. That's Ryan Wilson. He's the Republican candidate for Minnesota State Auditor. And we'll have more coming up, but first let's get a news update. John Wanamaker is here. Hi, John. Hi, Mike. Longtime Trump ally Steve Bannon has been sentenced to serve four months between uh, behind bars, I should say. He was convicted of defying a subpoena from the House panel investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Bannon will remain free as he appeals the verdict. The 68-year-old was convicted in July of two counts of contempt of Congress, one for refusing to sit for a deposition and the other for refusing to provide documents. Prosecutors had asked the judge in his case to impose a sentence of six months in jail. Bannon's lawyers argued their client deserved a sentence of probation. Several British lawmakers are jockeying to become the country's next leader following the implosion of List Truss's historic short-lived government. One of them is former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who was ousted by ethics scandals just three months ago. The governing Conservative Party aims to have a new Prime Minister within a week. Johnson has not declared he's running, but bookmakers have made him one of the new favorites. House of Commons leader Penny Mordaunt and was the first to declare she was running, leading the pack in lawmaker support as former Treasury Secretary Rishi Sunak. Ukrainian forces are bombarding Russian positions in the occupied and illegally annexed southern Kherson region. The targets include resupply routes across a river. The Ukrainian military is inching closer to a full assault on Kherson, one of the first urban areas Russia captured after invading the country. Russian-installed officials are attempting to evacuate tens of thousands of residents. On Wall Street, all major indexes are up between one and a third and one and three quarters percent. This is NPR News. Programming is supported by the Think Small Institute, providing early childhood professionals high-quality professional development opportunities, helping ensure all children are ready to succeed in kindergarten and beyond. Details and more information at thinksmallinstitute.org. Support comes from our partners at Maplewood Toyota, actively supporting the news and community involvement heard here each day. Maplewood Toyota thanks NPR for their continued commitment to diverse programming. Maplewood Toyota, we are who you are. Coming up on the next Science Friday, researchers are finding connections between climate extremes and societal conflict. We see these looking back hundreds or thousands of years, and we certainly see them in more recent periods. How else will global warming shape our behavior? That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday right here at 1 o'clock on NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about politics this hour, and here's an issue. Construction is underway in Duluth on two projects transforming iconic historic downtown buildings into badly needed housing. The developments are funded in part by a state historic tax credit, but that credit expired at the end of June after state lawmakers failed to extend it. As Dan Crocker reports, that's threatened renovations of other buildings around the state that are difficult and expensive to repurpose. One hundred years ago, the granite facade of this building in Duluth was the last place most people wanted to see. 
So we are looking at a pretty imposing kind of edifice of the former jail property. John Comer stands before the old county jail, built in the early 1920s. It's tucked behind the county and federal courthouses in downtown Duluth. Commerce is one of three developers transforming the building into 33 mixed-income apartments that he hopes people will want to call home. So it's a pretty active site right now. Um, As workers bustle about inside, Commerce points out terrazzo flooring in the lobby, detailed plaster work, decorative designs at the tops of columns. The craftsmanship involved is really extraordinary. And other things remain. Inside one of the apartments, Commerce points out a row of bars between the kitchen and living area. That section will be retained. Yeah, and that is, I think, pretty typical. Many of the units will have some remnants of, of bars or, as you see, some just mechanical elements of the blocks. Commerce likens retrofitting the jail to playing a game of Jenga. It sat vacant for about 25 years and was nearly torn down for a parking lot. The old cell blocks actually supported the structure. So they had to replace many of them with steel beams. The building was coated in old lead paint that had to be removed. Altogether, the project cost a little over $11 million. About a third of that cost is covered by state and federal historic tax credits. Without those credits, Commerce says, the project would not have happened. The kind of demands that a project like this brings forth simply require that kind of capital infusion to make it feasible. But now the future of projects like this one across the state are in limbo. The State Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit expired at the end of June. It provides a 20% income tax credit to project developers that parallels a similar federal credit. It's helped restore more than 170 historic buildings around the state since it was created about a decade ago. Megan Elliott is another developer on the Duluth Jail Project and co-founder of the group Revitalize MN. She says the credit recognizes the value in restoring historic buildings that the market doesn't take into account. Take the jail project in Duluth. It was built with 280 tons of, of steel and granite quarried from Rockville, Minnesota. There's no way you can ever overcome that lost embodied energy and carbon if you put that building in the landfill. It also creates jobs. For every dollar spent on a reuse project, you're spending that money on people and jobs as compared to materials. A recent analysis by University of Minnesota Extension found the credit generated an estimated $5 billion in economic activity in 10 years. But it's also expensive. In the programs last year, it cost the state nearly $125 million in tax revenue. State Representative Cheryl Uakim, a DFLer from Hopkins, sponsored a bill last session to extend the credit. You know, there is a cost. Anytime that you do a tax credit, anytime you do a tax cut, that costs cash. And there's a lot of needs out there. And sometimes this one doesn't always flow to the top. Still, Uakim says the credit has bipartisan support. It was included in the tax bill last session that the House DFL and Senate GOP agreed on. But that died in the fight over other spending bills. GOP State Senator Carla Nelson of Rochester chairs the Minnesota Senate Tax Committee. She's hopeful the legislature will extend the credit next year and also eliminate its sunset clause. She calls it a gem for the state. This is something that should not at all be controversial. It has not been controversial. It works. And it works across the state. If it's not reinstated in the next legislative session, several projects around the state are in jeopardy. Developer Chris Sherman says his planned $90 million conversion of Landmark Tower in downtown St. Paul into 186 apartments is, quote, not viable without the state historic tax credit. Dan Crocker, NPR News, Duluth. Programming supported by Centerpoint Energy. With energy-efficient natural gas rebates and programs, Minnesota businesses can receive initial equipment savings and lower long-term energy operating costs. The application deadline is December 31st. Centerpointenergy.com slash start saving. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Uh, we're going to close out the program by reviewing the week in Minnesota politics Been a busy one, a bunch of new polls, some high-profile debates. I guess that's not too surprising with just a little more than two weeks to go before Election Day. Here to help me recap it all is NPR political reporter Dana Dana Ferguson. (laughs) Dana, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me on. Well, let's start with uh, debates. 
Governor Tim Walz and his Republican opponent, Scott Jensen, met for just the second time of the campaign Tuesday night at a TV station in Rochester. Uh, The debate was broadcast on a number of TV stations in greater Minnesota, but not here in the Twin Cities. Uh, You listened in. What did you think of the debate? You know, it was the first time that folks really got a chance to see these candidates um, and see how they interacted with one another on TV. Um, I watched a live stream here from the Twin Cities. It was a little bit of a problem because the audio wasn't functioning at first. And I know a lot of other people who tried to tried to watch it had the same issue. Um, but ultimately, it was a quick roundup of several issues that have been big on the campaign trail over the last several weeks and months. Um, And ultimately, not a whole lot of news was made from that debate. It was sort of a parade of a lot of top hit issues. We heard about crime. We heard about the state's response to the riots in 2020. We heard about um, opioid prescriptions that Dr. Jensen had made um, a while ago. It hit a lot of issues, but None terribly deeply, I would say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we can't criticize others for uh, technical difficulties because I have to confess, we were supposed to talk to the uh, candidate uh, for governor from the Legal Marijuana Now Party, James McCaskill, but uh, we had a problem. We couldn't get him on today, so we apologize for that. Um, I thought the debate was interesting, but I agree with you. It it didn't seem to break much new ground. a lot of people have been talking about debates this year and how there there are only going to be three of them in the governor's race and how they wish there were more. Do you think debates make that much difference? They can. Um, for folks who maybe haven't been paying attention to this race, haven't been bombarded by advertisements or reading up on it over the last several weeks, it might be a fresh opportunity to see where the candidates stand on different issues or just to see them interact with one another and size them up in terms of how they talk to one another, how they uh, hold themselves when they speak in public or interact with journalists. But I think so many people have already made up their minds, especially in that contest, that it's unlikely the debate had a big impact in changing anyone's mind. Mm-hmm. And it's it's odd, a little bit odd, that the moment that really went viral and that most people might remember was... Scott Jensen admiring Tim Walz's smile. Yeah, so that was kind of a quirky moment. Um, The journalists who were running the debate asked both of the candidates, what is something that they liked about their competitor? Um, Dr. Jensen got to go first. He said, you know, I've thought about this question before and sort of paused and said, the governor is affable and tick, tick, tick. He has a nice smile. Um, it's a moment that blew up the internet and that a lot of people have talked about in the days since. I know that um, our colleague Brian Baxt talked to Dr. Jensen about it and said, uh, how did this happen? Or like, what was going on when you had this exchange? And Jensen uh, said he'd thought about the question, not so much about the answer that he would give in that moment. And so uh, looking back at it, he said, Maybe not his top moment, but he thought it's been funny, everything that's spun out of that. Uh, The governor, after the fact, said that not even his wife thought his smile was nice. So Mm -hmm. first time he'd heard that. And we should mention that the final debate, the third and final debate in the governor's race, will be right here next Friday at noon uh, on NPR. And, uh, you know, if you have questions you want to submit... Uh, for that debate. You can do it at mprnews.org. Uh, there's a, a place there you can click and, and suggest a question, and, and we'll see. Maybe we'll get to your question. So uh, that's worth doing. Okay, let's uh, change the subject, Dana. Um, there were some polls out this week. Our friends over at MinPost had one in the governor's race. It showed uh, Tim Walls up by five points. Um, other interesting results from that poll, I thought, uh, DFL Secretary of State Steve Simon with a lead over his Republican opponent, uh, Kim Crockett. But the attorney general's race and the state auditor's race, those two very tight. Is that the sense you're getting as you're uh, out talking to people as you know on the campaign trail? Um, do you think that poll pretty much reflects where things are at? I think it 
does reflect where things are right now. And looking at the campaigning across all four of those races, uh, the auditor's race and the attorney general's race, you can tell there's a different intensity there because the candidates look at those polls. They see internal polls that are close to that, um, maybe a little bit different, and they are using these last two plus weeks to try to get in front of voters and help them make up their minds because uh, they're not top ticket races. Um, As you talked to the auditors candidates a little bit earlier, Mm. you could tell that some folks still don't know what that office is meant to do. Um, But they're hoping to get a message across to folks over the next two weeks that, hey, I'm the right person for this job. I'm better than my competitor. Here's why. Um, And There are still quite a few folks who are undecided, making up their minds so they have a little bit of room to try to wedge their way in. Well, and it's also kind of interesting in both the uh, state auditor's race and the attorney general's race is even the candidates don't really agree on what the role of the office is. That's so true. Um, Having talked to all the candidates and written stories uh, about both races, there is a disagreement about what the attorney general's office should do. We hear... Republican Jim Schultz coming in and saying, if he's elected, it'll be all about prosecuting violent crime. Um, Meanwhile, Attorney General Keith Ellison insists that there are a lot of other things that office has to do under the Constitution. And to focus in on one thing exclusively would be a problem. He wouldn't be uh, fulfilling what he's meant to do. So certainly different focuses for those two candidates. Um, And then in the auditor's race, we hear Republican Ryan Wilson saying he really wants to be leading the charge on certain issues, even if they're not in the jurisdiction of the auditor's office, Uh, whereas Democrat and Auditor Julie Blaha says, you can't do that. You have to do what the office is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess the voters will have to decide that. Um, Another poll uh, came out from KSTP, and uh, and Survey USA is their pollster. it showed that that second district congressional race between incumbent Democrat Angie Craig and Republican Tyler Kistner, that one also neck and neck, one of the closest in the country maybe. And uh, it just started to occur to me this week that November 8th could be a long night waiting for the results of some of these elections. A long night and possibly a long November 9th waiting for uh, specifics, uh, Certainly that district, there are other parts of the state that have tight races in the legislature, um, different areas too. I think it'll be a long night for sure. That's a very, very good guess on your part. Well, I wonder if there will be recounts too. I guess we better get ready for that. Emotionally, I don't think I'm ready yet, but I'll get there before then. <laughs> well, emotionally, uh, I, I think I'm ready emotionally, but not physically. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, uh, what are we to make of all this? What is this campaign going to come down to? Is it, uh, there was a lot of talk early on that it's sort of a get out your base election. You know, if, if Republicans get their base out, Democrats won't be excited and Republicans will win. Then the abortion decision came down and the Democrats thought, well, this will get our base excited. Our people will come out and we can win. But now it seems to be settling back to sort of this, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a toss up. What do you think? I think we hear from both parties that they're trying really hard to fire up their base. They're going to be doing that for the next two weeks, really doing the get out the vote effort with their core constituencies, really trying to bring home those messages that are most important to them right now. And then trying to bring in some of those undecided folks who are maybe still on the fence, maybe were excited about voting earlier this year, but have changed their minds or maybe it was never important to them. And so over the next couple of weeks, I expect the Democrats are going to be talking quite a bit about uh, the access to abortion in Minnesota, whether that could go away, um, other rights that are afforded to people here that could be in question, uh, fair elections. And then Republicans are going to be hammering home their messages about inflation, the economy, crime, and just a lot of ads and door knocks coming to Minnesotans very, very soon. And designed to appeal to those voters who will come out and and support them. Exactly. And the ads are just 
I don't know if anyone has turned on the TV lately, but they really are really fast and thick, right? They're consistent. Any uh, commercial break that you get, it's just message after message after message campaigning. And it's hard to get around it. Even if you block ads on your streaming services, they find a way around them. Yeah, I wonder at some point, do the ads just stop being effective because there are so many of them and they're just on all the time? I think so. I, I've talked to some folks who just don't even want to watch TV anymore. It's gotten too bad. Yeah. Um, so when do the uh, campaigns move to the get out the vote mode, especially with early voting underway already? I think we're starting to see that now, and that's going to continue to be their message over the next two weeks, the final uh, run up to the election day. It'll be just trying to fire up voters in their constituencies and elsewhere, letting them know it's important to vote. Here's how you do it. Um, and trying to get their folks across the finish line. Mm-hmm. And uh, some news this weekend coming up too. more debates, of course. Right. And also uh, the vice president is coming to the Twin Cities. That's right. She'll be in town tomorrow uh, stumping with Governor Tim Walls and holding a reproductive rights roundtable. So trying to drive home that message for Democrats that abortion could be on the ballot. Um, Kamala Harris, the vice president, Joe Biden, the president, not super popular. Does it uh, help Democrats or hurt them when, when these folks come to town? It probably cuts both ways. With the base, I think it'll be a strong strong draw for them. They can continue to bring home those messages they've wanted to uh, bring home to voters. For folks who are independents or Republicans, it is a talking point to say Democrats still like President Biden and they're supportive of the things that he is doing, even if uh, Minnesotans might not be. Okay, Dana Ferguson, NPR News reporter, thanks for keeping an eye on the campaign for us. Anytime. That will just about do it for our program this week. Remember, next Friday at noon, the final debate in the campaign for governor between DFL Governor Tim Walls and Republican Scott Jensen right here at noon. Our producer today was Twyla Dang. We had help from Maya Beckstrom. Our technical director was Alex Simpson. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.